Wounds are infectious Like a dog scratched ear But pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. I spy with my little eye something beginning with M. And it's not Michael, because I'm not looking in the mirror. It is... Got any guesses? Microphone. I also spy with my little eye. L. Which is laptop. And D. Stop it. That's your minds. Desk. So I've basically got the three things I need for the podcast. Just before we get on with the show, a bit of exciting news. The next bonus episode on July the 13th is an interview with showrunner and creator of Being Human, Toby Whithouse. Myself and honorary old one, Sue Hemming, had an in-depth chat with Toby and we basically go through the whole run of the show. It was a really interesting and in-depth chat and I really hope you enjoy it. That will be out on July 13th, Thursday. Next up, my chat with Alice, All God's Children, and it first aired on February 28th, 2010, written, of course, by aforementioned Toby Whithouse and directed by Charles Martin. In terms of the cast, it is the greatest hits of Series 2, as well as our quartet. Lindsay Marshall plays Lucy, Donald Sumter plays Kemp, Rebecca Cooper plays Kara, Mark Fleischman plays Creepy Weird Lloyd, Amy Manson Daisy and Adrian Schiller plays Hennessy. And of course, Sarah Gregory appears as a zombified ghost thingy, Amy McBride. And this is the last episode set in Bristol. It's a welcome back to the podcast to Alice, who I think might be the record holder when it comes to appearing on the pod now. I'm pretty sure it might be the case. Hello. I think I'm on a par with Hannah now. I think four uh, times, yeah. Got to keep up with I her. Need to, <laughs> I need to do a league table. In honour of you being a regular, I thought I'd give you a really difficult question because as being human, it, the best things of being human comes in free. I asked you, what's your three favourite series finales that weren't being human? I found it a really, really hard question. And I think it's like, not many things have kind of gripped me like being human has. So I just generally couldn't think of sort of series finales. I couldn't sort of remember many specifics. And then I thought of a few different things. But my three were BBC Ghosts. I think their series three finale particularly was a good one. So like um, a character called Lucy isn't what she appears to be. She claims to be Alison's sister who's the one that can see ghosts. And um, yes. she comes in asking for money. And then it kind of the, the final episode ends with like, the ghosts find her out, work out that she's just a con person, and they're all kind of running. They can't leave the grounds of Button House, and they're trying to get this message over to Alison. And then like the kind of final scene of that is them all having dinner together, and it's just that's like a really nice sort of 
final scene and it gets like this the whole theme of the series together then my second one was i suddenly remembered that actually i really like in the flesh so i think there's series oh, yes. one um finale final episode is really strong i think it's got like what got one of the most heartbreaking scenes really of anything that i've ever watched where um Kieran's parents and particularly his dad like sort of confront how his like mm. suicide made them feel and also it's got um the guy in it that plays Jim in Brassic playing a very different role of Bill in there and he's just like a real awful character but re- brilliantly played and then my third yeah that's the thing with, yeah. within the flesh is I it took me a little while to like in the flesh but I loved the second series and I thought yes. the the way it ended in the second series was so heartbreaking in the sense that it it wasn't given a third series. Yeah. So it, it left so much open. But yeah, in the flesh, so many dark themes are explored in, in the flesh. So yeah, I, I, that's a really strong one. I think my third one was um, the last ever episode of Ashes to Ashes. It's like, I don't think I've seen it since it first aired. So, and I had to Google it yesterday and it was, I think it was May 2010. But the reason I've picked that one is because even though I've not kind of watched it for years and years and years, that is one of the only sort of finale things that I kind of remember snippets of, Mm. particularly. Because that had that kind of, I think, reveal in the last series and sort of this whole twist on it that they'd been into purgatory. And I think one of the characters was sort of almost representing the devil and i just remember this scene i think they're going down in a lift and it's all red and there's a lot of like symbolism to it that's kind of fitting considering the show we're doing today exactly there's definitely (laughs) a theme of things that i like watching (laughs) yeah um i i thought as this was a bit of a bugger of a question that i'd answer it myself and i actually went with life on mars oh so yeah well that was one of my options Purely because, I mean, the the ending to Ashes and Ashes was great. and But I think the central mystery in Ashes to Ashes, what they explored was who Gene Hunt actually was and what was going on in the greater world, where life on Mars was, why is Sam there? And it was all the, is it a dream? Is it, has he really gone back in time? Has he lost his marbles? Is he in a coma? And just the way that ended and i mean i think that's nearly verging on 20 years now yes life on mars but yeah it and it, it it left such an impression on me that those first two series with john sim I, I liked ashes to ashes i didn't take to it quite as much as life on mars and there's this been this thing about lazarus the writers wanted to do a third act really didn't they yes called lazarus and they just couldn't get the funding i don't i don't know whether it is a prequel for Sam or what, what whereabouts it was based, or I think it was the eighties it was going to be set, but I didn't right. know who the characters were going to be. But yeah, they couldn't get the funding, so they basically pulled the plug on it, which is a big shame, really. And my second choice would be Spaced. This is probably a bit before your time, so I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, that. I think I've seen snippets of it when it's been on late at night, but I've not actually watched the series. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those shows that really got me properly into telly and just such a geek about it, really. It's it's full of pop culture references and and contemporary music and it's all the Edgar Wright editing that we've come to know. And But the thing about the ending is 
despite all the silliness about the show, it is actually quite a sweet ending. And they left it with a dot, 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 and they've never gone back to it. They said, no, this is two series. This is perfect as it is. We're not going to do any more. They haven't ruined what they made. So obviously some shows go on a bit too long, but they've they've left it as it is. It's almost better that people go, is there going to be a third series? Is there going to be a third series? And he goes, no, there isn't, because why ruin it? Yeah. In the same sense that Faulty Towers, apparently that's coming back. Why? <laughs> why would you Why would you make it, bring it back? It's It's got that reputation as a classic and people love yeah. it for what it is. Just do not go there. Like, and that's that's another thing. That's twenty odd years old. If they if if they came back now, they'd be middle aged. Where's the story? It's not. It'd be a totally different story, and it wouldn't be the same energy to it. I suppose it's, that's I suppose quite similar to being human, isn't it? Because they're kind of all twenty somethings, and like you say, it's a quite a mm. specific sort of energy and time. Yeah, and uh, the last one I'm going to go very recent is Happy Valley. There was a couple of nitpick, well, one plotline nitpick I had, which kind of is reminiscent to a nitpick of being Human Series 5, same similar kind of plot point and characters. But other than that, the way the show ended, the way you've got this free series battle between Catherine and Tommy Lee Royce, um, it's just it's just a perfect way to end it. And all the other plot lines coming together from little seeds in series one and they still grow all the way through the 10 years of a show basically and I, I just think that's another point where S- Sally Wainwright has just said no there's not going to whether there will be a spin-off or something who knows but she said for now that is it no more it's done so I, I admire that like leaving a show at the top of its game and going that's it it's definitely an art to it isn't it to know when to stop yeah that's it um okay so we will crack on with episode eight of series two of being human the finale it's called all god's children this is i think this is a very differently paced episode from anything that goes on in the history of the show really it's in three acts and it's almost like 20 minutes at a time I think that was one of the things that really uh, hit me watching it. It was so different to all the other sort of episodes. Yeah, and I I thought when I was doing the notes, I thought no other Being Human episode is shaped like this. But there is one exception. But potentially the finale of Series 5 does have a kind of free axe to it. Yeah. It's, it's very different, but it does have the calm before the storm, the, the storm and then the calm again which is almost what this does. It's like not only the pace, like say it goes sort of slow, fast, um, slow, but also like the, I kept noticing like the colouring changing of a mm. lot of the scenes. Yeah. Like I thought that fitted the same sort of pattern. Yeah, and the we've gone from a cosy kind of atmosphere of the pink house, which we will never be in again, to this dark dingy badly lit uh, horrible old building so that's another change of tone it's, it's it almost it's like a prison isn't it yes i thought as it's, well, a ca- it's kind of almost shot a lot like purgatory 
because there's a lot of yes. these um, scenes of like the long corridors and like say the lighting it's really dark it's shadowy it's got this sort of cyan colour to it that's true actually um, yeah it, it in the way that they use Honolulu Heights for a couple of episodes as a character I think they've used the facility as a big character like this overbearing character that is kind of sending the characters a bit mad yeah even the people that are working in there, they're not well adjusted, are they? No. And I think, again, like how they've shot some of the like the angles and things, it feels like we're trapped inside with them as well. And you've yes, kind of that's it. have these, like, I think the scenes that you covered in the last episode where it's they very deliberately show you that final shot of the pink house and then you have the shot of the big metal shutters closing on George and mm. Nina, and like from then on, we're all stuck inside the facility. Yeah, like f- from freedom to captivity. Yeah, yeah, and I also like when Lucy, kind of, almost saying to the viewer, "Yeah, we know the lights flickering are a bit silly, and we know it's playing into the horror trope and the horror elements," but she says she blames it on archa- archaic wiring. And it's kind of a nod to the viewer going, yeah, I know that we'd have done something about the lighting, but it adds to the, adds to the drama. The atmosphere. Yeah. And also um, in one of the earlier scenes, we see the coffins of all the previous victims. And it's only just occurred to me on this watch that Tully is in one of those. Yes. Yeah. it was. I don't know why no, it, you... I missed out. It's just like, yeah. You can't sort of see them, but yeah, you don't think of them as who's in there. But yeah, it's one of those things you pick up. Yeah, so we start with Kemp, and it's a bit of a worrying insight to a day in his life because he, what would you call them? His staff? His slaves? Because they, I'd go with slaves. They're getting ready, they're greasing their hair, they're praying. His weird Bible guys. yeah, and then they go out onto the street praying or ranting, whatever you want to call it, at people in the street. Despite the fact that we got a bit of a backstory to Kemp and, and we understand where he comes from and we got a bit of sympathy sympathy for that, this is where he's at his worst in this episode, isn't it? If anything, he, he goes beyond redemption here. He... he, he, he there's no justification for his behaviour for the from now on till the rest of the episode. No, no, he does go off the rails. I find it quite sort of almost comforting when you see the scene of him out on the streets in Bristol preaching and like everybody's just going by completely ignoring him. <laughs> it's so awkward. I've I've walked past a few. We get some in our town here and it's just it's it's really almost like I'm British, isn't it? Yeah. Because we 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 keep ourselves to ourselves and go, "All right, how are you doing?" It's like I think and we're not. Yeah. That. I think sort of like every town has them, but in just the context as well of this sort of series, that because everyone seems or a lot of characters seem to be agreeing with Kemp, it's good to see the general Bristol public thinking he's just an absolute nutter. <laughs> it's his friendly face. So in terms of Lucy's storyline, um, it starts off, it's like she has a guilty conscience and she is visited by the zombified ghost, I think that's the best way I can call it, of a past sense of victim. What do you feel about the visitations in this episode? Are they a guilty conscience? Are they 
visualizations or visitations or are they real i kind of i like how they're quite ambiguous and open to interpretation but i think like for me i sort of feel like they are more real like she's Mm. a bit of a like a a bringer of this doom or like what's to come or even like sort of more feel she's more like a banshee really than a than a ghost like she comes and yeah she's like a sign that things are gonna go wrong like there's a scene where she pops up again later which makes it seem like it's more real perhaps yes the Lloyd the Lloyd scene in, in the, the in chamber the chamber yeah yeah and that's another thing we don't know Lloyd's fate do we no. <laughs> it, we we can only assume that Amy McBride got him absolutely yeah I like that that it is sort of left open and I was sort of thinking about this a bit more and whether it's almost like been like a thinning of the veil or something at the facility you know like where they've there's been all these deaths and all this supernatural sort of activity. So it's like maybe the doors and things are a little bit looser than in other places. Yeah, that's true. And like you say, I think the ghost thing fits, obviously, in keeping with the show. It it, it can be justified because they can just appear and they can just disappear. But I generally, I feel uneasy if shows do that because... It works here because it's a supernatural show, but I remember a scene in, I don't know if you've seen Line of Duty, when Dot is visited by, after he kills Lindsay Denton, an episode or two later, he's visited in the bathroom by pretty much not dissimilar to what Amy McBride looked like, right. just blood on her face, and I think she says something to him as well. And because that's like a procedural yeah. cop drama, it just something didn't Picks feel you right out of it a bit it does take you out of it a bit because you know that he's probably feeling guilt or like worried that he's going to get caught you don't in something like that i don't think you need to see it yeah whereas like here there is more of a question of that could have actually have happened rather than it just being lucy feeling guilty yeah. um yeah so lucy talks to kemp and she says she told me it's coming and he asks, what is? And she says, retribution, my stuff from Amazon. She didn't go into any detail. Um, there's an element of distrust throughout because Lucy is having doubts with Kemp. And then George shares his doubts with Lucy. And I really like the scene between the two of them in front of the chamber where he confronts her about Mitchell. And she admits to loving him. And George says, Mitchell's gone now. Yeah. But they're speaking at different levels because obviously... They're using past tense, but Lucy thinks Mitchell died in the fire, where George is referring to Mitchell being a lost soul in his yeah. humanity. And it's like he's lost his friend rather than, yeah, the um, actual physical Mitchell sort of dying. He's just sort of talking about the Mitchell that he knows. And George tells her, you make me nervous. It's like all my senses are telling me you're dangerous. And Lucy's response is a bit ill-judged. She says, I am. But she clarifies, but not to you. They're your, not your senses. There's a creature inside of you now. Kemp calls it a demon, but it looks me through your eyes and it knows what I'm going to do. And the best bit of this scene is George says it's funny because it feel like it's me. Yeah, I think George in this initial meeting with Lucy has got her much more sus than Mitchell ever did. Yeah. And I was trying to think as well because she says to George that he was always the target and that she sort of made a move on Mitchell to mm. get to him. But I was trying to think whether there was they had any scenes before this one together, sort of Lucy talking to George. 
and I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Mm, no, I think as George says, I I know I know you from the hospital, didn't he? He said that yeah. the last episode, but they other than hellos or he knows that Mitchell's been dating her. I don't think there's been anything else, yeah. but obviously Sensor have kept activity on the house, so they know all about it. Because it's almost like she gives them that excuse, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stand up when you give it any sort of thought. And I think this is this is uh, something that Being Human does really well is wrap everything up up from the series and bring it all together. And now in this, they've literally put them all together in the same building, which is quite a big move. Yeah. So George is finally meet, meeting Lucy. <laughs> Mitchell later has his confrontation with Lucy and Annie obviously the the loss she's been feeling and the emptiness that comes out in probably quite unpredictable ways but it all wraps up together well yeah and speaking of Annie in this episode in the true form of being human she has been lying about why she's in the facility and Hennessy lets slip about why she is really there but the most heartbreaking thing, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not afraid to say this, always makes me cry when I watch it. I well up watching this. Is the moment where George goes through the home phones messages. Yes. And it's just, it's her speech is just intense, and it's just, it's so sad, and he's just there coldly listening to yeah. it, not expecting it. Because we kind of like hear her leaving some of her speech, don't we, in um, the yeah. episode before? But yeah, I wrote down like it's when she says like you boys i love you boys because it was through you i really truly lived and yeah like you can't you can't not be moved by that can you and it kind of it ties in with a lot of those other sort of um like final lines that they say to each other in other episodes when they think they're gonna kind of not see each other again yeah and i mean she kind of justifies it to george later but this does feel like quite an unanny thing to do in the sense of not saying goodbye or not not letting them know what's going on. Yeah, it's almost like she's 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 not in a good place, is she? She's like sort of already let them go, and I think what she points out to George is quite um, important as well. That he's gone in there to get cured, and he's not even sort of thought about the fact that if he's completely human. Will he still be able to see Annie? And that it's important to her that there's somebody still left that can see her. Yeah, yeah. Because again, she feels like she's lost Mitchell as he was, so like he's not going to be around to to see her and hear her. It's a it's a whole battle, isn't it? It's fighting for visibility, and if she can't even be, if as far as she knows, Mitchell's gone off, and she can't even be seen by George, then that's just. Uh, nothing existence isn't it yeah and like there's that threat then of she could sort of just fade away to nothing if there's nobody there i'm also going to pinpoint the first scene between george and nina when they're in the facility here because as usual the chemistry between them is so on point but this is actually probably the first time in the series where they abandon all pretense and are completely honest with each other i mean Nina's always been pretty honest and direct, but it's actually George who kind of drops his guard. He's worried about Mitchell, he's worried about Annie, and he kind of wants to leave the facility for a day or two. Yes. But Nina's first line in this episode, he's a 116-year-old mass murderer, not a fucking gerbil. 
<laughs> that was one of the first lines I think I wrote down for this episode. But yeah, it's like it's telling again, isn't it, that first conversation that we see George and Nina have is about Mitchell. And he mentions Annie straight the way that she's been crying and she's worried about Mitchell. And Nina yeah. kind of tells George, Well, like, you've made a choice like to be here with me and she wants him to choose between her or Mitchell and Annie. Yeah. He admits that he's worried the test will actually work. I've been dreaming of a life without this and that it might be happen, might happen. The thought of it is so exquisite, it's so terrifying. But the best bit here is Nina's naked emotion. Calm down, Lloyd. Not literally naked. She says, if this works, we'll have nothing to hide behind. It would just be you and me and we've never known that before. My God, George, you think you're scared. They play off each other so well. I love every scene between them. Okay, and speaking of Lloyd and naked emotion, we we need to talk about Lloyd and what a dick he is. <laughs> I think, oh, it's, so, it's such a horrible scene, like the, what you sort of talk about. And it's the tissue, I think, that got me this watching it this time. <laughs> like, I think it's one of those things that you don't I never thought you'd say that, sorry. Yeah. I never thought you'd say that. It's the tissue that got me. You know, I think I hadn't maybe either noticed it or put two and two together, but yeah, when he's like he's perving on Annie and he just pulls his tissue out and there's the whole thing of what it means and it's like, oh no. Yeah, it's it's a bit sinister in the face he pulls. It really is. Um the the other thing actually that um was sinister in this episode, it's not Lloyd, but I did jot down and mean to mention earlier, but it's the Garfield mug. Yeah, and the hairbrush. Um, and the hairbrush. Oh, it's just the creepy overload, isn't it? Yeah, no, no wonder that Lloyd and Kemp get on with each other because they're both of the same. And the other thing, actually, that um, came to mind in this episode is I think the next time that I see the actor that played Lloyd, he's playing like the headmaster in a CBBC series called Wolfblood. Oh no! And it's just oh, I know about Wolfblood. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that I remember when that came out like a couple of years after being human and it's like, oh, it's the same person and such a different sort of role. He's always been tainted from being Lloyd. <laughs> I mean, he does play creepy exceptionally well. I don't know if he was a creepy, creepy in Wolfblood, but then maybe you can't get the tissue out of your mind. <laughs> uh, but, also, but honestly, from just... The danger wank over Nina is really taking things too far. But he's he's moaning that there's no milk in the tea. But he could have put cream in the tea himself. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone too far, haven't I? Mate, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... I mean, hopefully Lloyd does get his comeuppance when it finally happens. I think he does, like I say, we see him in the uh, chamber with Amy McBride and I think he gets his dues, but uh, yeah, and like there's a, a line there as well from I think the uh, weird Bible guy that we get the most focus on, he's called Daniel. Daniel, yeah. And he asks, like, he picks the bags up, doesn't he? He goes, what are these? And Lloyd just sort of casually says the body bags for the type threes. And he kind of thinks that like, Daniel goes like, I thought we were curing them. And he's like, just replies in a manner of speaking. So he's like, Lloyd's completely clear of what they're doing here. And he's lost the thing. Yeah, that's, 
I think that's what makes him worse. He just doesn't care. Yeah. He just doesn't care. Like, whereas obviously Lucy's battling with her conscience and... Lucy sort of still believes that there is a cure and Lloyd's quite happy to send them to slaughter. And Kemp's so far gone in his belief that he's doing the right thing, that he's overlooking anything else. But I think Lloyd's probably the worst of them because he just does not care. Yeah. We saw that scene with Kemp. We know why he's there, what, why he wants the vampires gone and everything. And we kind of see him bring in Lucy into the fold, but we don't really know why Lloyd's there and what his motivations are. No. No, we don't. Um, I think his motivation is basically he's got access to all the CCTV cameras <laughs> and a, a year's supply of tissue. We'll move on. Yes. Uh, so what we'll go to now is what I would class as Act 2, pretty much the second 20 minutes. And there's been a small little detail that Mitchell, while all this has been going on, has started to vamp up on a mission around the facility and kill off the staff. I, I have admitted this, admit, <laughs> just a small thing. And Kemp, Lucy and his slave, sorry, Daniel, have spotted the activity on the CCTV. Lucy knows it's Mitchell. Mitchell was destroyed in the fire, Kemp says. Amy McBride died in the chamber four months ago. That didn't stop her dropping by my office this morning. Uh, Kemp tells Lucy that he's primarily looking for you and the fear in her eyes. <laughs> uh, Kemp tries to activate a lockdown and isolate the type freeze. And also, just saying the word type freeze just makes me realise that Lloyd said, you naughty type free. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Just That's gonna, gonna stay with me. It's gonna get worse. Uh, Daniel asks what to do if he runs into Mitchell. Kemp reassures him, "You have your Bible with you." I mean, yeah, sure, that'll do it. Jesus saves, doesn't he? Except when he doesn't. The mood that Mitchell's in. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure a Bible would help out in the school gun massacre, wouldn't it? Kemp tells Daniel that there is work to be done, and effectively that Nina and George should not go back out into society. So he's hinting that they are to be killed. So again, he's just lost all sense of proportion, hasn't he? Yeah. And then, like, we sort of, it's one of the lines that um, Lucy says, isn't it, um, about, oh, Annie and George, they're still alive when she meets Mitchell. And it's just like, why are they still, al like, still alive? Mm. Why is still, mm. like, such an important bit? And you see mm. there that they've, already kind of decided that, yeah, George and Nina are going to die. Yeah, so Daniel takes George and Nina to the dingy little room, which is a bit like another dingy little room with a prison door this time. And George goes off script and wants to visit Annie en route. He confronts her about her suicide note. And like we said earlier, she says, you'll be human, George. You won't be able to see me. Nobody will be able to see me. Which kind of deflates George's anger a little. He has her for one more day, and like the scene with Nina earlier, it's kind of lovely, and it's got a bit of emotion and honesty because this series has no honesty all throughout it, right until the, and only is it in the last episode do we get characters actually saying, "Oh, this is what's happening. This is what I feel." In fact, it's all that he then sort of suggests to Annie that maybe he could stay as a werewolf, even though he's just mm. sort of promised to Nina that he'd try the cure for yeah. her. He's trying to appease everyone isn't yeah. it yeah and then they, yeah they have that really sweet moment by the where they both sort of they hold hands and they're like i love you and oh 
Yeah, so Lord uh, George gets tetchy with a nervy Daniel. And then Kemp and Lloyd go to confront Mitchell outside a lift door and Lucy locks herself in a room. But they're tricked by a dead body, proving that Lloyd really is a big wuss pants. Because what I was thinking about that as well is the um, when you were saying for the last episode about like the bodies on the train for the box tunnel, about the, um, you know, some of them had got like bits stuffed into them and they're having a bit of fun with it. I think it kind of almost proves that maybe it was Mitchell that was having some of that because he's like shoved one body in the lift, he shoved a body in the ceiling, he's sort of playing tricks on them, isn't he? Yeah, using them as playthings. Yeah. Uh, in the prison cell, George is flustered and Nina weirdly is quite calm and a game of I Spy results in the revolution revelation that not only does George have a nice ass, but that Tully has left George a note on the wall. It says, George, all the werewolves die, Tully. I'm not going to touch on the fact that I gave up on George's bum box for a reason. Um, do you think Tully had accepted his fate? Because obviously he knew about the previous deaths and he was just there knowing it would happen. So so the other day I went trawling back on the BBC blog archives because I knew there was this sort of deleted or like alternate script out there for like how the facility started up and all the werewolves that were in there before George and Nina. And okay. it has this bit in there where Tully comes in. So um, the first it, person, the first werewolf in there is called Praig. And then his um, like girlfriend is Amy McBride, who we've seen earlier. She comes in with Tully. So Tully goes into that chamber when she goes into the... Um, when she goes into the chamber, Tully's in that room. So he's already seen. Um, he knows that Craig's died beforehand. He knows then that Amy dies, whether he puts that note in before or after she dies. Mm. But then I think he also sort of gives George Mitchell and Annie's like, um, situation to Lucy and Kemp in this okay. bit of deleted script. But he says that he'll tell them like the address and their other details after he comes out of the chamber. Um, I think it's going on at the same time as like the last episode of series one. Obviously, he never makes it out of the chamber and then they get the details from Owen. So it's almost like he's trying, I think he tries to bait Lucy and Kemp with keeping him alive. Hmm. Yeah, there's also, um, you mentioned on Twitter yesterday, wasn't it? There's more of a backstory to the Kemp and the facility? Um, yes, yeah, so it just goes... Or, or, or that he, what, Toby had it in the script, but he just didn't have the time for it. Yes. Yeah, it was like a really long... It was going to be the opening scene of um, episode seven instead of the Ivan and Daisy scene, but it, it, I think it would have like taken up half of the uh, episode because it had all these flashes between um, the facility and then George's changes throughout series one. Okay, so we finally get the Mitchell and Lucy showdown. He's got blood on his face, she's got blood on her hands, and it's a verbal battle over who has the slightly less compromised morality, I suppose. Uh, Lucy's defence is, the three of you, you erase everything. Science, faith, we go back to the year dot with you. And she justifies the bombing of the funeral parlour by saying that they had to stop the parade of bodies coming into the hospital. And it suddenly becomes a weird competition on who has killed the most people. 
she insists they're helping the werewolves, but Mitchell's killer line, that's very noble, but did it ever occur to you that if you started pre-ordering body bags, then maybe it was time to stop? And she retaliates, you are poisonous, you are wearing other people's clothes. And he says, you have such a reductive view of the world. God made man in his own image. What if that included his rage, his spite, and his indifference, and his indifference and his cruelty? We're all his children, you see, but God's a bit of a bastard. Look at us both, covered in other people's blood and talking about morality. <laughs> the, the heart of this argument is that they both feel betrayed by each other. It's such like a, it's such an epic piece of writing, isn't it? Really, it's this. We've talked a lot about, um, I think the monologues and things throughout this series, but this this is one of those scenes that kind of sticks in your head. Some of the lines from it. Also, I found interesting the um, sort of when Lucy says about you're wearing other people's clothes. That sort of reminded me of like Herrick's line and Howe's line in series four about raiding the dressing up box it's sort mm. of a similar theme yeah I mean, yeah like herrick literally did with a, a, the police uniform doesn't he yeah in uh the in the looking glass and he thought oh i like this i'll keep to this but yeah I, I love this because it's again it's one of those things that it's it's eight episodes in the making and the conflict at heart and the betrayal and they they to lock them in the room and take them away from everyone else i think that's a really clever move I think like it's quite obvious they still have yeah but their relationship and there's still some feeling there and yeah like that wouldn't have worked as a sort of battle between two characters if they hadn't have had that relationship beforehand. Hmm. I, I mean, I would ask who's right in this situation, but neither of them are. <laughs> no, they're both sort of guilty, but they both make really good points. Um, there, it's, it's an epic scene and Mitchell is brooding and, and uh, uh, Lindsay Marshall is a brilliant actress and this is a great performance but there are a couple of little bits that take me out of this scene I don't know if you've noticed it I might be wrong on this one but I think the room that they are in is the same room where he stabbed the coroner in the previous episode I'm pretty sure it is Ooh, I don't the, know the shape and the layout look exactly the same I don't think I've ever sort of noticed that or or thought that. The other thing is like you get the um, it goes back and forth, doesn't it? Because you kind of it's almost like they're in a police sort of thing where there's the, like the two way glass. Yes. And um, but one thing that sort of struck me as well is that it cuts back to Kemp, doesn't it? After they're talking about yeah. the fact that they've had sex, and Kemp's just doing that thing where he's gripping his face. <laughs> like his his hands in his hands and um I think Jealous. That's, yeah. I think that's kind of when Lucy's fate was sealed for Kemp. Mm, yes. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh the second bit though that takes me out of this scene is like you say, Kemp is watching in distress on the CCTV cameras. But why is he getting a fully directed <laughs> cut of it? <laughs> And not standard CCTV footage. He's not getting something from the corner and just seeing Mitchell and Lucy in, in the distance. He's getting a fully, fully directed up close. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's why I, I thought he was behind that glass sort of. It's like a glass wall or like a, a window yeah. into that room. I, th I, yeah, but why would he be able to hear word for word what they were saying? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's watching on the telly, isn't he? I've not gone mad. I don't know now. <laughs> <laughs> if he's not watching on the telly, I might forgive it because they're obviously they'd have a a way of hearing what's going on in the room, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. But I'm sure it's a telly. I mean, it doesn't take anything particularly away from the scene. It's just one of those things yeah, that... it's one of those things when you've watched it so many times that you start thinking, oh, hang on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, in the meantime, George and Nina have escaped prison and Kemp charges in on Annie and Hennessy. It's time we helped Annie finish her journey. And watching on proper actual CCTV footage, George and Nina are looking in on Annie's room. Hennessy, bless him, is defending Annie to his death, probably literally. There needs to be a, a death to make a door for her to pass through. How are you going to do that? Oh, Hennessy. Kent brings out his long, and it must be said, very girthy steak and plunges it right into his chest and his ghost appears. R.I.P. Man in denim shirt. <laughs> yeah. Good call. That's a... That's, that's not even a callback. That's a call forward. I do feel sorry for Hennessy and the fact that like he he can't see Annie, but he's completely stood in front of her as well, defending yeah. her. Uh, Kemp rants some religious bullshit, or if you choose to believe it, some religious niceties, and Death's door rattles menacingly. Hennessy's last act is wiping the floor clean as he's pulled in by an overwhelming force to the other side. Kemp turns to Annie. Spirit, I demand you to leave here. The power of Christ compels you. And she falls softly to the floor, knowing her fate is soon to be dragged, screaming through the door. All this, of course, is witnessed on the cameras by George and Nina. And Mitchell, all set to nom on Lucy, feels a pang of pain as Annie goes to the other side. And there's a lot of six senses in this episode, because George senses that Mitchell is in the building later, and... Mitchell feels it when Annie's dragged away. So I yeah. don't know. I mean, we've we've had a bit of sixth senses in the sense that sometimes George can hear things in the distance. So is it convenient or not? I'm not sure. I think as well, like with Mitchell, Kemp seems to have been fully aware that he would have the, some sort of reaction to Annie going, like that he would feel it, yeah. as he says, you know, to him later, just think, like, did you feel a go? Hmm. And it's whether does Mitchell have that connection, like because he has a connection to Annie, or is it because he's a vampire and he's still sort of, you know, almost got one foot in the other side, so he's got connection there as well. The yeah, only, it's a weird one. Yeah. The only thing that sort of takes me ever so slightly out of that scene now is I know in, in an interview somewhere, I remember Lenora Pulitzer saying that they were, that scene was she was laying on a skateboard. Pulled by a rope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, that is kind. Of, I think they do well and they make it look pretty good. It is, it's the kind of thing that would be very difficult to shoot, isn't it? Yes. And like, if you didn't know that, it's just because it's one of those bits of trivia that sort of pop in your head. And like, when that scene's happening. Also, again, like, we've got another, the door behind the door is completely black this time, where we've only sort mm. of seen. Um, the white light um, originally and then there's like that red door with soul isn't there at the start of series two yeah and it's like oh is it black because it's an ec um, an exorcism or you know there's something sort of wrong almost with this purgatory it's not it's not a good way to go 
it's not a, it's yeah it's not a normal one yeah and we get we get a bit of you know in series three when mitchell goes into purgatory he's he's kind of almost jumped the queue and delaying other people going in and he kind of messes the system up so maybe that's part of it yes there's a part of it there so a drunk on power kemp runs into mitchell in the corridor did you hear a go he teases did you hear the scream as she was ripped from the world i want you to know pain like the families of your victims i want you to know grief and rage as i did and mitchell has him pinned to the wall at this point i'm ready to meet my maker are you ready to meet yours uh george approaches and demands he stops i'll kill him and i'll kill you mitchell states you know what I've done. And of course, I think this is referencing to the little incident on the train. If you want to kill, if you want to rip away every last shred of humanity, then fine, George shouts back. But don't you dare do it in Annie's name. They're monsters, not us. And Mitchell backs down and they take their leave. So it's, it's a, a good timing all round because Mitchell was about to nom on Lucy. George gets there just in time to stop him killing Kemp. Although I wish he had killed Kemp. Kemp almost seems disappointed that, it, like, it sort of, um, you know, it cuts fades on him sort of slumped in the corridor, doesn't it? And it's like he wanted Mitchell to kill him. Yeah, because I think that, I mean, I suppose it would almost justify his beliefs, wouldn't it? Yes. And he, he, he went, he went, he died doing the righteous thing in his mind. You know, that's that's probably where he goes with that one. Yeah. The other thing that sort of really stood out to me in this scene is, again, going back to the sort of the colouring of this episode, is this scene with Kemp is in a real red tinge to it, mm. which you kind of don't see anywhere else. So the rest of the sort of facility is all very blue. The, when George and Nina almost go through the door just before George comes back, you sort of see the Bristol Street outside. It's very bright white light coming through the doorway. And then you just have this sort of red rage-tinged sort of scene. Yeah, and also it goes back to the whole thing with the flickering lights. If this... I mean, it would still look alright, but if this had been done in broad daylight or with artificial lighting just on, it wouldn't have looked as effective. You need... I think... I know the flickering probably is a bit over the top, but it does add to the atmosphere, doesn't it? Yes. And then, I guess, we're on to the last 20 minutes, which is Act 3, and it's a whole karma scene and uh, three weeks later a postman rocks up to a cottage in the country well he doesn't rock up he just postman's up to a cottage and i love honolulu heights and obviously but at the time in series two did did we know there's going to be a third series at this time i can't quite remember but i honestly thought that especially what with mitchell saying escape to the country i thought series three would be set in this cottage I don't, yeah, I don't know if I knew about the move to Wales, so I'm not sure if I knew for yeah. sure that they were changing sort of location the first time I saw it. Yeah, it would have been certainly a different feel to it if they had been in the in the countryside. And considering it was Mitchell that told them to escape to the countryside, it turns out he's actually ended up in the countryside with them. It's sort of they they've got built up a good like aesthetic, haven't they? With the being human sort of locations, and it fits in mm. with like the pink house, and it it's different in its own ways. Like you say, it's a sort of country cottage, but it's got the the same sort of quite empty. There's lots of old furniture around. The wallpapers yeah. really old fashioned, and 
I think there's a moment when you see Nina sleep like in bed in a, a massive jumper. So there's obviously like it's cold and there's no heating. That's it. Uh, Nina collects the post, which is a book, and on the radio they talk of an event at Bristol Cathedral to remember the Box Tunnel 20 victims on the 27th of last month. This 1846 Southwestern Express from Bristol Temple Meads. And this is the first time we hear the term Box Tunnel 20. Uh, we learned that the train stopped in the Box Tunnel, because obviously in the episode last time we it was dark, so we didn't know it was yes. in the tunnel or anything. And after an obstruction on the track, which I assume is a Mitchell and Daisy shaped obstruction, uh, they, this is where the atrocity was carried out. Mitchell is hunched over listening to the radio. He's got a morbid fascination with it, hasn't he? Yes. And sort of George calls him out, doesn't he? It's like, are you, um, you know, haven't you had enough like listening to this? And he's just said, oh, it's interesting. And George sort of says, other people's grief, it's pornographic. And that almost thought that tied back into some of the storylines you have in series one where we sort of know that vampires enjoy sort of watching each other kill don't they on the on those mm. like with the disc and it's like do vampires just generally enjoy reading about and listening to lots of this sort of morbid things going on whether or not yeah, that's it. you're aware that Mitchell was the one that committed it Considering uh, the podcast is named after this incident and it's got Box Tunnel in the title, I have a couple of Box Tunnel facts for you. Prepare yourself. This is intensive research, or Wikipedia as I call it. Uh, the Box Tunnel runs through Box Hill on the Great Western Main Line between Bath and Chippenham. It's 1.83 miles long and at one stage was the longest railway tunnel when it's completed in 1841. There you go. Ooh. So now you can place where the box tunnel is if you want to do a location trip. There was a series um, that Jason Watkins has been in at McDonald and Dodds. And oh, okay, It's yeah. set in Bath, and I think one of the episodes was set around the box tunnel as well. Which was, was it? Yeah. How have I missed this? Well, um, I've not watched the show. <laughs> it was something about like on a such and such day of the year, the sun sets through it or whatever. But it was just funny. It was just bizarre seeing Jason Watkins as a, a completely different character to Herrick, just <laughs> chatting about the box tunnel. Wow, I, I will have to dig that one out. It's not. It's not the best program, but <laughs> no, I I remember I saw a couple of the series one, and I, yeah, I was a bit a bit like, oh, this is a bit ITV. <laughs> Turns out Nina has been doing her research on Lucy Jaggart, ordering her books online, including the classic God's Blueprint. Every home should have one. And we get to the crux of Nina's problem. And we, we've kind of touched on this in the podcast before. Like, it's a, almost a humanity and a sense of decency that causes a lot of the problems in Series 2. And let's be honest, Series 3. She says, Sir George, I brought Kemp to the house and he met Annie. I convinced you to go to the facility we watched her get, and she can't even bring herself to say the word. And yes, I have to do this. And it gets worse because obviously her paper trail is what leads Lucy to the cottage. I think like we don't sort of often appreciate enough how much trauma Nina went through. Mm. And she kind of brings it up again, doesn't she, when Lucy comes in, like to the others, that she was in the facility for two months and she was in the chamber. Like she could have very easily ended up exploded and she they convinced her to bring George in 
That's a scientific term. Yeah. And she, so she's been through all of that and she'd only just sort of found out about the whole supernatural world as well and just become a werewolf. So it's it's a lot to deal with, Vanina, isn't it, in a short period of time. So Mm. she kind of throws herself into this research. Yeah, she's she's been acting on her human instincts, even though she's a werewolf, because that's all she knows. Whereas, obviously, we said it before, but like George has had two or three years and Mitchell's had nearly a century of it. So it, it she's just, her heart's in the right place. It's just not fit for this world, is it? Yeah, and she she's, yeah, she's doing it with the best intent, but she's not thought through that, oh, hang on, if I order all this stuff to my house, like, that I might be able to be traced through this. So Mitchell is leaving the cottage only to be confronted by Lucy at the end of the drive and not surprisingly she gets a frosty reception. She admits the chamber was my idea. Four people died in there. Craig Ford, Amy McBride, Lee Tully and Richard Galvin. And it's strange why Tully's called by his surname, like a a vampire. Yes. Yeah, so he grabs her by the throat. I have to live with what I've done. I think you should do. But she wants to see Nina and George. And a delicious cut, It it's now Nina grabbing her by the throat. You've got some fucking nerve. And I love the ferocity between Nina and Lucy. She says, I came here to say sorry. Sorry? What, like you've pranged the car? And Q, another being human trait, a kitchen meeting. She must have been some late, and Mitchell's retort is classic. It was inch high, private high that led her here. <laughs> Uh, Nina is always direct and blunt, but now she's angry too. They set the agenda. Why is it always down to the victims to do the right thing? Uh, Lucy is going to stay on the sofa. What a cosy sleepover that's going to be. This, I suppose, is kind of Lucy's redemption moment where she tells Mitchell, I betrayed my lover. I betrayed my faith. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And not much sympathy is forthcoming. He says, I guess you're a monster now, just like us, and heads to bed. And I think like she complains, doesn't she, about the lumpy sofa and he gives her yeah. his jacket to like cover over her and she's like, It's still got blood on it. And he just sort of Yeah. Yeah, tough shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh Nina gets up in the night, suspicious of Lucy, and finds her in the garden. Lucy tells her to run and she gets a stake in the back from a deranged looking Kemp. The boys run down to find Nina captured by Kemp with a stake to her throat. The dog, it begs, he says to George. And a door appears behind him and opens for Annie to drag him in, hopefully to hell. The TV fizzes and crackles and Annie appears through the noise and talks to them all. She says, we wait, we have to have a number and we wait for someone to call our number. And Annie's made purgatory sound a lot like waiting at the meat counter. We move to another room and we wait there. But then one of us disappears. There are bells and there are buzzers and whistles. And now it sounds like a rave at meat counter. We have to fill in the form. <laughs> it's a even hell as admin. And there isn't a form for killing a religious bigot, apparently. So she fades away saying, please don't forget me, will you? And Mitchell states, we're going to get her. And George looks less convinced by this. And I remember watching this the first time. I was genuinely distraught <laughs> that Annie was <laughs> in purgatory. And I'm not entirely sure there'd be a third series at the time. So I think the ebb and flow of this episode is excellent. But a lot of criticism that this particular episode gets is that the ending is too rushed. 
I don't agree with that, but because I think the calm we get before this again is is what's needed. But Annie dragging Kemp through the door. I mean, I'm not surprised there's no paperwork for it, but because how can it happen? How can she be trapped for three weeks in purgatory and then do that and then be trapped again? Like Kemp deserved a bad ending, but I perhaps it needed to be a different way. Is yeah. his purgatory? Is his punishment? being alive in purgatory or hell because he's not really dead either i think that's it like i I quite like it as a as a comeuppance because as i say earlier he sort of it's like he wants to die he he wants that martyrdom and he thinks that he's in the right so he's sort of it's not a death then yeah he's gonna be gone and like punished but also i think like you kind of think annie gets away with it a bit for just like from throughout the series of they've kind of made this point that Annie is very powerful. So you can kind mm. of almost say that yeah, she would be able to come back through the door. Um also it's quite interesting, like after I've only just like quite recently read The Road after your uh, other podcast. So there's a character that comes back through a door into the pink mm. house in that. So that's sort of I know it's slightly outside the general canon and then but we see it again later don't we with um oh, i can't i wanted to call him kemp but i can't it's i'm not um herbie Kirby. yeah and also in a, a little sort of you see eve as well in that sense so the kind of build on it yeah i, I like that i don't think we ever find out what happens to kemp do we no but it's and in, in, it's an interesting point. And again, you sort of mentioned earlier that we have Mitchell going through a door in the next episode and that there's just a little bit more flexibility maybe and playing the kind of lore and things around purgatory. Well, I guess you could argue it goes back to Annie's power and she could do that for a temporary amount of time to get yes. that done. Also, maybe the... Being that she is trapped in purgatory, can't be in the real world for too long. Yeah, she's kind of a it bit might be... see-through, isn't she? And there's like a bit of yeah. sort of distortion around her. Yeah, yeah I mean, with all these kind of things, there's always a bit of flexibility. And I wasn't sure, but it was a good ending for Kent. But now you said, actually, probably being stuck in purgatory or hell or wherever he is, while actually being alive, is probably probably what he deserves yeah it's like a worse ending than him just being killed and i think as well yeah. that we don't sort of appreciate him as a villain as much as maybe we should because i think like herrick is so iconic and such a fantastic villain i think Kemp always gets a little bit overshadowed but he is mm. you know re-watching this series a real you know a brilliant villain really Oh yeah, that definitely. And also, I just think the way All God's Children flows, it doesn't particularly go where you expect it to go in certain places. Like the Mitchell and Lucy confrontation, you know, you'd you'd assume Mitchell would kill her. You wouldn't expect them to end up in the middle of the countryside. You'd expect for what it's building up that George would actually get into the chamber in episode eight. Yeah. And that never happens. Yeah, kind of yeah, like I've not thought of it that way, but yeah, you're right. It it doesn't do the expected route. 
the death of Kemp or the ending of Kemp is also not predictable. I, I'd actually forgotten until I watched this recently that that was how it ended. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's quite busy. This It's quite a busy episode, isn't it? You know, you've got lots of dead bodies everywhere. You've got lots of things tying up. You've got lots of payoffs from the series. So it's easy. I mean, Annie literally just appears for like three or four seconds and then shoves him in. So it's easy to overlook that, I suppose. Okay, so then, speaking of surprises, we get a Sieg into a teaser. And in the snow, we see two figures knelt over and find it's Daisy and Kara. This is where Mitchell said the bones were. Blood heals, says Kara. You saw the state of me when you found me in that cave. And I think this proves that Daisy didn't trust Mitchell, that he carried out the job and she went to check on his work. Uh, She says, but I drank him from that kitty you bought me and now look at me. I'm not sure this is entirely a valid argument in the sense that yeah, Kara, Kara was probably in a bad state after having a brick in her face, but he hadn't. She hadn't been torn into hundreds of pieces. No, I was thinking as well because you, I think you said in the last episode about when Mitchell and Daisy are on the bed, and he says, "There's somebody yet. There's someone else." I wondered then if that was Mitchell was telling Daisy that Kara was still alive, um, but imprisoned. Oh, yes. Or even that that's when he told Kara or whenever she found out where the bones were. Yes, it never occurred to me, to be honest. Yeah, that's a good point. Up arises Sir Herrick, looking like a, I don't know, abnormal snowman, I suppose. <laughs> Raging. That is not a predictable end to the series, is no. it? That is just like, what the fuck? Herrick is back. How is, how is that possible? And like you can sort of see the the line where he's like his head's been glued back to his body as well as sort of a bit of <laughs> things like where they've been playing around with makeup you can almost see that he's been patched back together like Frankenstein but it's nice to know that even when he was under the ground that he had his dignity covered <laughs> and again that's like only going to remind me now of that thing at the BFI with uh, Jason Watkins saying about filming that scene and there being a load of pensioners around watching <laughs> <laughs> yeah herrick's back and I, I suppose people would say about series two there's not a big bad they're one of the questions we've got later says there's not a big bad isn't such in series two but like you say i think ken pierce it's just a, it's a different style and he's human yeah, i suppose definitely say that where do you think this ranks in terms of the finales of being human really like it like i think i love there, it yeah there was a, a poll out actually on tumblr recently about ranking the favorite finales and did I think you do I, the poll yeah i think i put i did put <laughs> this episode as my favorite for all the oh. finales but uh yeah i think often there's that argument that maybe the penultimate episodes tend to be better but yeah i i really like it I think, yeah, I think it's strong. I don't, I mean, I think every final episode of Being Human is so strong. So I I don't know if, I don't know where I'd place it, but I think it stands out because it's very different, maybe. Yes, yeah. 
what will be a tradition with the end of every series of Being Human with the podcast, we will answer some questions from the recruits, some listener questions. A bit that I will still call, has everybody taken stupid pills? And the first one comes from James Lloyd. He says, I have a random question for you. Does anyone remember the charity eBay auction for the BBC did for children in need or Red Nose Day? I can't remember exactly the year, maybe 2011. Had lots of TV props and costumes for auctions like Doctor Who, but it was more importantly included being human. It included several outfits worn by each of the trio. I think it may have included that yellow shirt and other props as well. They even auctioned off the massive leather sofa from the pink house. Surely the bloggers won most of it. Did you win? Did you bid for anything? I did, but was outbid. I remember an early episode you mentioned they were given props and stuff, and later on, I think it's only included stuff from this time in Bristol. So it's kind of fitting for the end of series two. Yeah, when I remember in series five, when it was confirmed that the show was ending, they did a lot of things on the blog about competitions and you could win parts of the house. I remember one of our fellow honorary old ones has got a fire guard <laughs> from, from Honolulu Heights. I was reading the blog in 2010. Do you remember anything about this? It sounds like something they'd do because obviously they're moving everything from the studio and they don't need it so but i don't recall it i remember i remember the sofa being auctioned and i think mitchell's leather jacket i feel like because i think i was sort of more on the blog from 2012 that it might have been a little bit later but um yeah i do remember it i definitely didn't bid on anything because i wasn't in sort of any position to at the time i think i was about 17 yeah sort of i have a a i would love to know if anyone still had any of it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it it would fit with how the blog were very fan-friendly and, yeah, they've got stuff to get rid of, so it would it would make total sense. Okay, the next question is uh, from Kathy. She says, who has the strongest series arc for you in series two? For me, it's Mitchell because of his reluctant leadership of the vampires the box tunnel and his relationship with Lucy. Well, what do you reckon? I think, yeah, I think I would agree actually, because um, when you sent this question earlier, I was, I don't think like George has, like he doesn't really go very far. Like his arc, he kind of comes back to where he, he began really in a way. And obviously yeah. Annie ends up in purgatory and I think Mitchell has the most developed sort of story. I think my initial reaction to that was George in the sense that he starts series two uh, uh, bitter and angry that he's done that with Nina for Nina and he's a dickhead in the start of the series and then he goes through the journey of trying to tame the wolf and move house and new relationship but does he yeah I suppose he does kind of come back to where he was but maybe that's not a bad thing yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and I think Nina too has a very strong arc because yeah. she, she's kind of a bit player in the first two series, but she's such a strong character that she doesn't feel like a temp, you know, a character that doesn't appear very often. Yeah, that's it. Because I think, yeah, again, I I would have sort of said for Nina, but because she's not in it much at all, like we see her a couple of times in like the later episodes and in the sort of first two. It felt like Mitchell had more, yeah, more storyline. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess after a slow start, Mitchell, it it does 
does become more centered around Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Mitchell. I, I'm changing my original thoughts. Okay, so this is from Kennedy. She said, I really enjoyed the tour of Bristol episode. In that case, you're nuts. <laughs> I loved it as well. <laughs> she says, will there be one for the Barry Island in the future? Uh, yes, there will be. Um, that'll be... It'll be a bit more varied, I guess, in the sense that because there's a lot of filming in Newport and Cardiff and Barry itself. But yeah, there will be around, probably around Series 5-ish. Uh, the Bristol one wasn't totally conclusive. I think there's something I missed off of it because I couldn't visit it, which is the Redwood Caves. Redcliffe Caves, sorry. And this is where Kara gets a brick in her face. And then there's the under prelude with all the... Six, uh, it's a scene set in 16-something and they're in the caves. That's it. Yeah, that's the one. So that's set there as well. And I think this slightly used in the beginning of series four as well uh, years ago i think there used to be a person who did bookings and took people down there a group of people down there and you have to wear like head torches and and steel toe cap foot, footwear and all that kind of thing but the last couple of times i've kind of looked into it there's the the link doesn't work and the phone number doesn't really go anywhere so i know actually they've they're filming something i saw on twitter this week something's being filmed in red cliff caves this week so it's obviously still active and but i don't know whether they have tourist visits there whether it's just events the short answer is yes there will be a barry island one this is from steve weller what are your thoughts on annie alternating between visible and invisible i think it makes her the most inconsistent character i still love her but it's a little frustrating She's sort of she's only visible for the first two episodes, isn't she, in series two? Yeah. So I feel like they kind of deal with that pretty early on. I think the battle with Annie is is the whole point of probably certainly series two is that battle for visibility, as we were discussing. So probably the frustration the viewer might feel about it is probably the same frustration she's yeah. she's got. So in... I don't. I I think. If you keep her invisible for the whole time, then the only people she can really interact with are Mitchell and George, and you can't do anything much with that. She needs she needs a world expanded, doesn't she? Yeah, I think it's sort of worked how they they played it. And there's that sort of scene in um, episode four that we covered where um, Sykes sort of says, well, you were never meant to be visible in the first place. And hmm. it kind of explains away the little plot holes, doesn't it, of the first series and early series too. So this is from Anon on Tumblr. Stop the press. Mitchell was the hottest vampire ever until Ivan rocked up with his beautiful deep voice and dark eyes. Who for you is the hottest series two vamp? I think this person probably needs to go to horny jail. I've been to horny jail and it's sexy. <laughs> Who's the hottest vampire in series two? It's, it's a difficult one actually because... I think Mitchell and Daisy, it's they're very strong contenders, and Ivan, to be honest, as well. Like they, those scenes that you're on about in the last episode with, with with Mitchell and Daisy, are both equally hot. The squelchy scene. Yeah, and um, actually, when Mitchell confronts Lucy in this episode as well, and he's all bloody and manifested, it's the same thing again. 
I think, I mean, it's, it's got to be Daisy, isn't it? It's got to be Daisy. Mitchell's, uh, when he's not greasy and covered in blood, yes. But Daisy, greasy, covered in blood, still yes. Daisy is my answer. Okay, so this is from Jane. Do you think the trio continued to... Oh, this is an interesting one. Do you think the trio continued to pay rent after Owen ran away? They technically have no one to pay. I was wondering about that, because I think in the pilot episode as well, they say something about Owen being over in Saudi. And I think Mm. they even... I think it might even prop up in Flotsam and Jetsam just as a little throwaway line like he was over there first. So I wondered if maybe there's a lettings agency that they do continue to pay. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought it'd be a a continue to pay because they don't know that Owen's run away and gone mad and is not contactable, do they? They, No, I suppose that... No, because he sort of leaves it like Annie puts the frighteners on him, doesn't she? And he, he leaves the house, but do they know he was arrested and all the rest of it? And also, when George leaves in series two, how are they paying? If they are still doing, you know, Mitchell's a cleaner. If they're still paying it, Mitchell's a cleaner and Annie doesn't earn any money. So... I mean, they could have potentially just stopped the payments and just hoped that no one noticed yeah. if it's just direct to Owen. Yeah, and he wasn't picking up his accounts. Yeah. There you go. That's something I've never thought about before, but that I suppose at some stage in Series 2, it's just Mitchell that was paying. And then, like, also on that front, like, how do they end up with the cottage? Because surely they would have had to have put a deposit down, yada, yada, and... George gets a job in two weeks. They might be squatting. Yeah. They're on the database. So if you're squatting, you're not getting post sent to you. Okay, this is from another Anon on Tumblr. The very common name, Anon. Uh, Where does Series 2 rank for you? I put it middle for diddle as my third favourite. I feel it lacks the ultimate big bad like Series 3 does too. I think... I'm probably the same in that it's in the middle. I really like series two. I think for me, maybe series one and four are sort of more tied at the top. And Mm. then I would put three and five below two. But I don't think it's not like a a knock on series three because I think all those episodes are really strong. It's just that for me, series two and the other uh, one and four have more episodes in that I tend to go back to just on their own rather than doing a whole rewatch and there's just much sort of stronger episodes within those series I went into this process of doing the podcast with a firm belief that series 2 was my favourite series because I love the darkness I love the atmosphere to it I love the broodingness of it and obviously the humour actually studying the episodes that we have done now and I also love the series arc as well. I think what series two lacks a bit is, and it goes a bit off piste, if I can use a t- tobogganing term. Is that a tobogganing term? I don't know. It's no um, term, so. Uh, I'll ask George, he'll know. It is the side stories maybe aren't quite as strong as series one and another series. It, it, 
I, I can't explain it. Like the Sam yeah. stuff works. The Sam stuff works and the psych stuff works. And but maybe there's a bit of inconsistency. It's sort whereas... of like there are some episodes where like there's a, a main storyline, but the others kind of haven't got much to do. Is that what you're sort of saying? Maybe in terms yeah. of like I loved it when Annie met Hugh initially, but I'm not overly convinced by the storyline of getting her back with his ex, Kirsty. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, it's sweet, but it's... I don't want to say filler, because every episode of Being Human has a lot going on anyway, so you can forgive something that probably takes up about five, six, seven minutes of the overall show. Yeah, I've probably come out of this thinking maybe Series 2 isn't my favourite. I still love it, but that's been quite interesting. Yeah. So I I I think I can probably only answer it at the end once once I've analyzed every episode into excruciatingly excruciating detail as we're doing now. Okay, so the last question is you mentioned earlier in the series that series 2 explores religion more, but I felt it could have gone further. For example, George questioning his faith and a deeper backstory of Kemp. This is by Kelly D. Uh, what are your thoughts on that one? I don't know. I feel like it's sort of... I feel quite happy with what it covers in terms of religion, and you kind of get enough of it without it being too sort of over, overwhelming, maybe, of the storyline. I, I was trying to remember then if there was another... Um, I think it might have been an alternative like script or something for series one actually where it was it george talking i think it was talking more about the werewolf side of things and it had a bit more about george's religion in it then but i i'm not sure what else you as i just said it's a very busy show anyway there's a lot going i'm not really sure what else you could do in terms of exploring religion in the sense that what do we need is god real is the devil real because obviously it's all about beliefs and it's kemp's belief and he quotes the Bible quite a lot. And George, I think, goes through a lot of stages throughout the show anyway, where he kind of questions his faith and, you know, where his place in the world. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure what else. I mean, maybe someone could come up with a suggestion. I'm not sure what else was needed in terms of religion, yeah. because it, it, it it's a theme that continually comes back in the show anyway but just in different forms. I think the only other thing I could sort of think of about it is in in episode two when Ivan's talking about if people, if humanity found out about vampires and werewolves, and I think he has that line about, you know, all the people, the churches would be full and everything. Maybe Mm. something more along those lines of what other religions would think of if they found out or how they would react to supernatural but yeah i think i'm happy with where it went and how much it covered yeah i think so too i've just prayed to the church of toby whithouse that is my that is that is my god (laughs) thank you once again to alice for coming on the show and discussing another epic episode of being human that is it we have reached the end of series two and it's all changed from here um you probably noticed that there was a different way of doing things and that's where the podcast will be going from now on. I hope you liked it. Uh, let me know your feedback. You can message me at boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Box Tunnel Pod, on Facebook and Instagram as the Box Tunnel Survivors Group. If you want to become a recruit, you can like and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. You can leave a review, as long as it's a good one, if you're able to do that on your app. So yes, following the Toby Whitshouse interview in a couple of weeks, we start on Series 3 and there'll be a couple of episodes in August because there's two full moons. So we'll have Leah at the start of August and Adam's family at the very end. As always, I sign out as I sign in with Henry's funeral shoe and dog scratched ear. Until next time, I'll see you round, you naughty little type freeze. was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks.